Support for this podcast comes from Avature ATS, an applicant tracking system that redefines user experience for candidates, recruiters and hiring managers. Just listen to one of the many ways in which L'Oreal USA has improved their hiring process with Avature, as told by Edward Dias, Director of Recruitment Intelligence and Innovation. Since we've been using Avature ATS globally, we have been able to massively improve our communication rate with candidates during and following their application. Uh, before over a million people worldwide would never get contacted. Um, but with this smart automation and flexible processes, we've been able to change that. And that's been a huge achievement. Visit avature.net, that's A-V-A-T-U-R-E dot net, to learn why global market leaders like L'Oreal choose Avature to extend the candidate experience from shoulder tap to first day. There's been more of scientific discovery, more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi everyone, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 271 of the Recruiting Future podcast. Every organisation has a culture. It's impossible to exist without one. Understanding, nurturing and amplifying the most effective parts of that culture is a critical activity, but very often one that organisations fail at by asking the wrong questions. So, as an employer, how do you make sure that your culture is enabling you to get the best from your people and helping you to attract exceptional talent to your business? My guest this week is Andrew Missingham, the co-founder of BNA, which describes itself as the fastest, most creative management consultancy in the world. BNA work with companies to help them understand and nurture their cultures. And Andrew has some fantastic insights to share. Hi, Andrew, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Could you just introduce yourself and tell us what you do? My name is Andrew Missingham. I am the co-founder um, at BNA, which is we style ourselves as the fastest, most creative management consultancy in the world, because I think we are. Um, actually, I tell you what, it's 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 no great shakes that as a claim. It's in a way, it's like saying we're the world's fastest snail. Always um, pick a fight you think you can win. Um, and I'm also a problem solver. Everybody at BNA uh, pretty much does the same job. So as well as um, co-leading it with colleagues. Um, I also do the work um, of solving problems for our clients. And what kind of clients do you work with? I think it's worth uh, kind of stating what the vision of the business is, and then we'll work back to who the people we, we try to serve that vision through are. At BNA, our vision is to create a world of cultural, charitable, profitable enterprise. We believe that the best businesses in the world in the 21st century are the ones that combine the best of those three worlds. They're profitable insofar as they can self-determine and create models that can scale. They are charitable insofar as they really rigorously ask the question, why? Why should the world be like this and why do we endure things or allow things that maybe we shouldn't? And 
charitable insofar as it's benign. They're the best businesses leave the world a better place than they found it. And cultural insofar as it does two things again. The first one is uh, cultural organisations create outrageous possibility. They create dreamed uh, realities that people make into real realities after that. And also cultural organisations are very much in, in touch with the world as it is, um, as people really interact. And, and so in service of that vision, trying to create a world of cultural, charitable, profitable enterprise, the three words are interchangeable. Um, we work with businesses across the range of those three worlds. So we work with charities large and small people like Mary Stopes International for whom we wrote their 10-year business plan last year. We work with um, the Nike's, Nike's corporate charity, the Nike Foundation and, um, and Girl Effect. Um, we've worked with them for many years. And on the corporate side, we work for Nike. We work with Samsung. Uh, we work with uh, the developers of, of King's Cross, Argent. And culturally, we work with people like uh, the British National Youth Theatre, the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, we work with Punch Drunk, um, Frantic Assembly, um, all sorts of people. And it's that uh, cross-fertilisation of ideas around that central vision, which I think makes our work really rich. Obviously, we, we've been living through a time of dramatic change in in business for the for at least the last decade but 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 really the the last um, few months has been kind of absolutely unprecedented in terms of disruption and, and things that have been going on around the world how how are you seeing companies adapt to that in interesting in interesting ways what what have some of your clients been doing to deal with and, and cope with the the situation that we all now find ourselves in we found that there is a, a fight or flight split between the businesses that we've seen. The flight is, you know, where people basically retreat from the changes and hunker down and furlough large amounts of staff and try to try and either either through necessity because their balance sheets were poor and so they, you know, they haven't got uh, the, the, the leeway to be able to see it through or they would prefer to preserve cash for another day. Um, and those ones very much, you know, as I say, either there's a retreat or there's a, a certain amount of paralysis that's happened to those uh, organisations or businesses. And some, you know, you just can't do anything about. If you're an arts organisation who, you know, run a large annual festival and you can't do that anymore, that is an enormous uh, amount of, you know, your income gone in one fell swoop. Or if you're an airline or if you're, you know, various businesses like that. The other ones that we have seen are basically fighting it and they are... Um, aggressively in the best sense of the word looking to uh, innovate with their business model looking to uh, diversify their um, uh, diversify their, their revenue streams looking to deeply invest in their people at a time when their people have less client centered work um, and are basically preparing for uh, a new era and a new tomorrow 
be that things that will go back to how they existed or more presciently and and more importantly to be prepared for the things for which this will presage and i'm not i won't use the uh the phrase that 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 is a cliche i'm really going to try and uh, avoid it um the things which will be uh commonplace uh and uh after this um uh crisis has uh, abated and and so yeah it's very much two sides matt um, so I want to come. Uh, I want to come back and talk about the the post COVID world um, a, a bit later on in our conversation. But before we do, though, really interested in sort of digging deeper into your thoughts and 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 what you do. So you you do a lot of work around culture and and building culture. What is culture as as far as you're concerned? I think that culture is a set of behaviours that people in groups coalesce around and so culture abhors a vacuum you can not have no culture every organization every collection of people who uh, have behaviors that have coalesced in some way or are recognizable in some way um, will have a culture and so the question for me is do you allow that to happen um, and just take place because as I say a culture abhors a vacuum um, or do you proactively ask yourself what kind of culture do I want and what kind of culture best serves the direction I'm trying to take this group of people or enterprise or whatever it happens to be in I think it's interesting Matt to, to contrast it with two other words to give you an idea a better idea of what culture is culture is not creativity and culture is not heritage and so let's split those up creativity is the process of having new ideas that have value that's not my definition that's Sir Ken Robinson's definition and I think it's a really useful one and so this idea of having novel things that you do or try what happens what makes creativity into culture is when people start to get behind it in number i'll give you an example let's say um larping live action role play it's creative when someone says you know what i love world of warcraft or zelda or whatever so much i'm going to go to a thrift store and i'm going to buy a plastic sword and i'm going to get a helmet and i'm going to call up a couple of mates and i'm going to say why don't we do this in the park live that's creative that's creativity it becomes culture when you've got a website and maybe you've got a sponsor or maybe you've got a grant from you know a local authority or from you know uh, a, a, an arts grant making organization and then jimmy carr starts making jokes about it in eight out of ten cats and there's a larping correspondent in the new york times or whatever that's culture because culture then becomes heritage via very often a quite an uncomfortable portal what happens is heritage is by definition the culture that a society decides to preserve for the future and heritage culture the bit in between is when people go you know what we've moved on with larping can we change it up a bit and some people go yeah yeah we need to move on and some people go no 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 you can't do that you you've got to preserve what we had before you know we've got to go back to the old school and eventually there will be a a museum for the preservation of larps or whatever it might be or or, you know a society for the preservation of larping or whatever and you see that in businesses people are constantly in businesses going 
What's our culture? When sometimes they mean how are we fostering creativity and sometimes they mean what is our heritage? And it's obvious with some businesses, the heritage of Coca-Cola is Santa wearing red, white, you know, polar bears. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, the dynamic contour curve, etc., etc. The question really is, how do they use that to inform tomorrow's creativity? And how do they celebrate the culture that they have now via the creativity that they celebrate and encourage? I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And that's, uh, that, that's, such a, that's such an interesting example as well. I mean, I suppose you've, you've effectively asked my next question, which is how do companies build a, a culture that's productive? We're working on the assumption that, not the assumption, working um, on the fact that, that everyone has a culture, whether they, whether they like it or not. How do, you, how do you build that into something that is is productive for that that business or that organization okay i'll give you two two things that we've found the first one is in 2017 and then we we had another go in 2019 we surveyed um businesses employing over half a million people and and we found very strong uh, evidence from business leaders that, that those are the people who filled out the the survey um uh we found that there are three things that determine a healthy culture. Um, or, sorry, there are three things that determine a healthy business. The first one is the quality of your product or service, obvious. The second one is the relationship that you have with your clients or customers. Um, and the third one is business culture. And you very often ignore business culture in your good times and rely on it in your bad times. It's like a water butt. It's like a water butt that you fill up in the rainy season or in the winter. And then in the dry season or the sun, you actually need to call on it. You need behaviours that are benign, reinforcing and helpful. That's very often the time when you have to ask yourself of the kinds of people that you employ, background there, you know, the kinds of behaviours you think are useful to have around, the pace at which you decision, how fast or slowly, it's neither one thing nor the other is good or bad, is useful. The, 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 the traditions that you have. The traditions are, um, my favourite definition of tradition was given to me by um, a woman called Ros Rigby, OBE. And she said, a tradition is something that you want, that you've done twice with the intention of doing it a third time. So it's a very inclusive definition of a tradition. So the traditions and protocols that you create where power lies and where does it really lie? Does it lie vertically in an organogram or does it lie with the person who can open the door on a Sunday and get work done? You know, does it, does the power lie with the first people and the last people in? And I think it's been really useful in, in COVID times, this total redefinition of what an essential worker really is around the people who are essential to get making everybody productive. And so there are a number of others, but basically what you do is you need to do an audit. And in BNA, we have eight of those metrics as part of our process called the Culture Dividend, which is our uh, trademark process for taking organisations through a, a, a period of cultural inquiry and then transformation. And then once you have discovered, firstly, where your intention is going to be, in other words, how you are aiming to be productive, and it's a really good word you use there, Matt, as opposed to you know profitable or whatever, you have to define what's the productivity that you're after. And you've done that uh, culture dividend audit, you then say, okay, this is a lever we, which we need to pull harder. And 
you know and, and this is something that you know actually it's not more more like more like channels on a mixing desk actually you know things are ordinary or, or already recorded and your question is what needs to come up in the mix you know what sounds good that you need to push a little harder we very often look in cultural inquiry for bright spots you know what are the things that are good that could be great you know and and so then the culture dividend process involves a series of interventions um and a, and some tracking um about how you can create those habits and those behaviors which reward the most productive kinds of behaviors you are trying to inculcate i mean that's really interesting could you give us could you give us an example? I mean, I know, you know, for example, is it something that you've done with your with your own business? Um, it would be interesting to sort of hear how, how that actually might work in practice. Yeah, um, we've done this with a number of businesses uh, in the UK and the US, taken them through a whole culture dividend process. And um, at BNA, I think that, you know, we are very much kind of of the Marie Curie school of medicine where we always operate on ourselves. We always take the medicine ourselves. Um, and so um, we created a system of badges for um, that. La- the, there are 16 badges which are about the behaviours which we believe are important for our team members to be fully functioning BNA team members. Now, let's get this clear. The goal is not for everybody to win all the badges. I think that, um, you know, Cub Scouts and Girl Guides, who were the ones who won all the badges were always kind of a bit odd in my view. You know, it was, I, I always felt that the, the central idea of those, you know, scout and guide badges was you win the ones that you can excel at, you know, and you create the diversity between people. And so at BNA, what happens is these badges, and I'll, I'll name some in a moment, um, they are awarded by your peers after you've finished your probation and you get awarded three, which are at your kind of unique mixture of talents that you particularly major on and bring to the team. And so they're ones like analytical, uh, caring, um, articulate, open, down with the kids, uh, honest. Um, you know, there, there are whole loads of, load of behaviours, um, detailed. We, we don't ask people to get the same badges. That's not what we're interested in. We're interested in... Um, the similarity that people have humanly um, as values, but the diversity of experience um, and perspective that people bring. And how how does this all work at the moment when we're going through this pandemic and vast amounts of people are working um, working remotely and, and working you know in, in kind of a highly highly stressful highly stressful in, in environments and also what changes can you see happening in the in the post-covid world in terms of how people think about think about the culture within their business yeah i think that now is a time when remember i said about in difficult times you rely on uh the strength of your culture um i think that it has been a real uh revealer of organizations which have poor or uh, under-leveraged cultures. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, hotels that when they shut down have basically thrown everybody out onto the street compared to other hotel chains which have given over 
um, spare you know rooms to essential workers or to homeless people or, or whatever it might be. Um, I think that every business, of course, is a human business. The question is, how do you treat your people? Um, now is a time at BNA where what we've done is we've instigated two uh, meetings a day um, for, from the start. One was a city huddle. We have uh, offices in three locations in, in uh, Shanghai, in, uh, in London and Portland, Oregon, where you meet at the beginning of the day and just check in how people are humanly um, at the beginning of the day. And the, and the other end of the day, we, we join two of our teams together. So there is an international huddle where we do the same sort of thing. And finding out how people are, there is, of course, a chance to, um, to talk about the work. This is really important as well, Matt. The culture's in the work. At a workplace, the, the, the culture is forged in the work that you do. Culture's not, you know, dressed down Friday, you know, around a ping pong table, right? It's forged in the work that you do and how you treat people during the work that you do it. So, of course, when we talk about how people are, the thing that unites us is the work that we do. We, we, we're, we're colleagues. And so we talk about that stuff but in the context of how people are going through these changes. And then, of course, we've had to make a few changes, which actually have changed my mind on a few things. I used to be very sceptical of working from home. Um, I felt that people learned from the culture of the organisation by being in a shared space. And they also had a responsibility to contribute their voice to the shared space. So they had an obligation to be there to be able to build that culture. Um, I've actually changed on that one now. I've seen BNA's culture um, maintain and in some ways um, strengthen through this with people working at home. The, the challenge is some people's working environments are very different. You know, our youngest team member, you can see his bunk bed you know, behind him, you know, um, uh, as opposed to, you know, people, I'm in my 50s and I'm lucky to have a house with a garden. And so, you know, this kind of thing is different. But again, I think going back, one of the changes that we're going to make is we're going to say anybody who wants to work from home can. That's fine. You've got to join the meetings virtually if that's, you know, what you want to do. But if that works for you, when you want to do it, you can do that. The other change we're going to make is we're going to mean, make as an organisation that works across the world, you can pick either a local day or a city day as your working day. And so if you want to work a London-Shanghai day, you'll work, get up very early in the morning and you work through, through about kind of London lunchtime. If you want to work a London-Portland day, you'll do the opposite. You'll work from about lunchtime to the evening. And again, that brings us together as a global team. Um, but also it's more humane, you know, to, uh, to the people in terms of, you know, when you can best do the work you need to do. So in terms of, I suppose, you know, making, making predictions about the future is, is, always, is always difficult at the moment. It's particularly difficult. But just g give me your view on perhaps sort of broader changes that we'll see to to, to business coming coming out of this, other than uh, more and more companies sort of adopting working from home and thinking about more uh, creative ways of collaborating. What else is going to change and, and what do you think is going to stay the same? Yeah, I, I think that uh, one thing is, imagine tomorrow you and me, Matt, 
were able to wave a magic wand and put everything back to the second week of March. So we're pre-lockdown globally, except for China. So let's say, let's rewind it back to the end of last year. We're pre-COVID. Um, we have a pre-COVID state, but we've been through what we've been through. I honestly think that if anybody was to say to me, Andrew, I'd like you to get on a flight to come to a meeting face to face, or Andrew, I'd like you to get in a car and come and meet me face to face, I would at least have the conversation, is it necessary? And I believe that's going to be one of the major changes. It's such an obvious one, but such a simple one. But I think that people are going to have um, the uh, concept of virtual working and virtual conversation as much more um, a possible and sometimes desirable choice to take. And that will play itself out in very many ways, um, but I think that will be here to stay. What will go back is the, which sits, you know, it's countervailing to that, is the, um, the premiumness of face-to-face human contact. And that's because you, one listens with all one's available senses. You know, if you have all five senses, you will listen with all of those five senses. And so people listen with all of their available senses and take in many, many things, both not just when they're meeting people, but on the journey and, you know, and on the way back. And, you know, if you, you know, I think that having, um, so I think what happens interestingly is that virtual contact, it's like FOMO on, 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 social, on social media, um, virtual contact makes the face-to-face more and more premium. So the more that you tweet or Insta post or whatever, an event that you're actually at, the fraction of the actual tickets for that thing become a smaller and smaller fraction by dint of the more that you, uh, you amplify it virtually. And I think... Therefore, the sharpening of the value of face-to-face contact um, is going to be one of the other outcomes. I couldn't agree with you more. Andrew, thank you very much for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure, Matt. My thanks to Andrew Missingham. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow us on Instagram. You can find the show by searching for Recruiting Future. You can also listen and subscribe to the show on Spotify. You can find all the past episodes and search them as well at www.recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can subscribe to the mailing list and find out more about working with me. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.